Okay, time to have the kids come on up front and find a spot to sit. Come on up, guys. Even if you're visiting, you can come up and join us. You can bring somebody with you if you want. Come on over. Find somewhere to sit. All right. Find somewhere to sit. Good job. Good to see everybody. A couple more friends coming. Okay. Now, all of you just walked up. From where you were sitting, you walked up here, right? Now, what did you walk on? You walked up onto the stage, but what was under your feet as you walked up? The ground, the carpet, right? Okay, now let's, let's use our imaginations a little bit. Think. Imagine that you were walking through sand. Would that be a little harder to walk in sand? That'd be a little harder to walk in the sand, right? Now, what if you were walking... Yeah, what if you were walking in water? That'd be a little harder, wouldn't it? What if you were walking in snow? We saw some snow this morning, right? If there was lots of snow, that would be harder, right? Grounds covered in snow. Now, now, what if you were walking in peanut butter? That would be pretty tough to walk in peanut butter, wouldn't it? Okay, now, that would be super hard. Now, in the Bible, we read about walking in something. Do you know what the Bible says? The Bible talks about walking in truth. Truth. What might be the truth that we should be walking in? God. What do you think? God. Yeah, walking in the truth of God's Word, right? God's Word is truth, and we are to walk in, uh, in truth. So walking in truth means that we are to live lives of faith according to God's Word. It means that we are seeking to know God and seeking to be obedient to what he tells us in his word, in the Bible, obeying what we read in the Bible. Now, what do you think is more difficult, to walk in peanut butter or to walk in truth? Yeah, mixed reviews. I don't know. They're both tough. They both can be tough. Because walking in truth can have challenges. That can be challenging at times, to walk in the truth. There's lots of temptations around us that could pull us away from walking in truth. Temptations that could pull us away from obeying God's Word and living faithfully before God. And so we have to be careful about that, don't we? We have to pay careful attention to God's Word and what it says. And we have to give good effort by God's strength to live lives of faithfulness before God. And when we do that, when we walk in truth, there's a few things that happens. Uh, one is that when we walk in the truth that God is glorified, he's pleased and honored in that, right? God's glorified when we walk in the truth. Second, when we walk in the truth, we are blessed. We, we experience God's blessing when we walk in the truth. And when we walk in truth, it brings joy to other people. It brings joy to our parents. It brings joy to our pastors and other spiritual leaders in our lives. And it brings joy to others around us. So do you think you can be young people who walk in truth? Do you think you can live lives of faithfulness, obeying God's Word? Do you think you can do that? I bet you can. Yeah, we can all strive for that. So thanks for coming up. You can go back and listen to Pastor Jeremy.
Thank you, Pastor Jeff. If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to the letter of 3 John? We are in 3 John, way towards the back of your Bibles, just before Jude and Revelation. 3 John, the plan is to uh, preach 3 John this Sunday, Jude the following, and then we'll have five weeks in the book of Colossians. So 3 John today. 3 John is the shortest book in the Bible in terms of words. Um, yet even though it's short on words, it isn't on truth. In fact, if you were to read all of John's writings, the Gospel of God, John and the three letters of John's, uh, not including Revelation, you'd see that the central idea of each of his letters is just this idea of truth. In 3 John, there's 15 verses you see, and the term truth is found in five of them. Uh, so 33% of the verses contain this. So, but truth isn't here just emphasis on knowing facts, but on living them, as Pastor Jeff said. That's the emphasis of John's writing, so that we might walk in it. And so his concern is kind of practical living as a Christian. That's it. He doesn't want us just to know more data, but to understand the truth of God and uh, the gospel, and then how that applies to what you watch on TV or anything else. That's what John wants us to live uh, more consistently with the truth. Now, just a word on preaching here. As you know, one of the things that can happen in church is that preaching is just really about facts. You feel edified and like preaching was worth it if you walk away with something new. Um, that is enjoyable. It is fun to learn new things, and so that can be part of it. But the purpose of preaching isn't just acquisition of information. It is to preach the word, the truth of it, in, by applying it to our lives in very intentional and personal ways. Uh, and so the preaching of God's word is, is to take it home with us, to exhort us, to encourage us to do what God would have us do. And so 3 John is for that. You'll see it throughout it. So let me read this letter, uh, pray, and then I want to explain just a little bit more about how 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John relate to each other. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles." Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the truth that Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. 
Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil is, has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we'll talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. Let's pray. Teach us now, O faithful God, to hope in your rules, to delight in your commandments. Help us, Holy Spirit, to place our hope and trust in your eternal promises, which are all yes in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are closely related in that uh, each gives rise to the next. 1st John, as I said a couple weeks ago, was written to a church where some within the church began to teach that Jesus wasn't human and then began to say that because Jesus didn't live in the flesh, one of the things that happens with us is we don't have to live obediently to God in the flesh. So it doesn't matter what you do with your body as far as sin, just as long as you have a good spirit, a good heart. So they were separating our life from truth. So John wrote 1 John to address that and to help the church understand why they were leaving. Well, when they left, they went to another city and to another church. That's the letter to which John wrote 2 John. So these false teachers left the church that he'd written 1 John 2 to the letter that he wrote 2 John 2. And he wrote them to encourage them in the truth and to urge them to have nothing to do with those false teachers. Don't invite them to your home. Don't even greet them. So he was writing 2 John to tell them to be inhospitable. Now in 3 John, we meet a man, Diotrephes, who is being inhospitable, but is being inhospitable to people that he should be hospitable to. And so now he writes a letter of 3 John to correct this. You see... Uh, the work in the church is never done. Doctors and pastors will always have a job until Christ returns. Uh, and, and, and so John is writing each consecutive letter to deal with a thing that the previous letter had written up. So Third John is written because uh, Gaius and this church is doing very well in walking in the truth, especially practicing hospitality, except for this man, uh, Diotrephes. Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, John notes, is refusing to care for the teacher sent from John, and in fact, anyone in the church who was trying to provide hospitality, he's kicking them out of the church. And so John is writing to praise the church and to urge them not to imitate Diotrephes, but to imitate men like Gaius and Demetrius. And so the central exhortation is verse 11. This is the heart of the book. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil is not seen God. And so this is the heart of This is why he's writing it, to urge them to continue to imitate godly men and not men who love themselves more than everybody else. One of the things I'd like to do is just focus initially on verses 3 and 4. The best way to think of John or any church leader, pastor, or elder is as a father. Uh, John writes to his beloved Gaius, and then in verse 3, he rejoices greatly that the brothers are walking the truth. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children. So John hasn't given biological beginning to these people, but he's been deeply involved in them spiritually as a father. 
And so John is a church father. And so uh, this is simply to remind us that in the church, men are fathers. And not just fathers biologically, but we should see ourselves as fathers spiritually. And so Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 that every man should aspire to be an elder. An elder is a father in the church. Every man should aspire to be involved with other men and women in the church in a fatherly kind of way. But what I want to do is note the joy of John as a father. John is happy. In verse 3, he rejoices greatly. And in verse 4, he says that there's no greater joy. John is a happy father. This reminds us first the kind of father God is. Sometimes we as believers are convinced that God is kind of a, a stoical God. He's not happy. It's hard to please him. Um, it's really easy to make him upset with you. You believe that. But it's almost eternally and infinitely possible for God the Father to rejoice in us. And that isn't true. Uh, it's exactly the opposite. God rejoices over us with singing. Um, if you remember, I, I use this text often because I think we need it consistently reminded to us that when, when God the Father was present at his son's baptism, what did he say about his son? <clears throat> he said, this is my beloved son who is, I'm very difficult to be happy with, right? Uh, this is my beloved son who I'm well pleased. And if you and I are in Christ, this is the same sentiment for us. And so don't forget that. Um, but what I want to do is just talk to fathers a minute here. If God the Father is a God who is easily pleased with us, of course he isn't satisfied yet where we are in Christ. He, he looks for more growth in us, but he is a God who rejoices over us, who takes great delight in us. One of the things that we as fathers can sometimes do is consistently not be satisfied with our children. Communicate to our children in a tenor of dissatisfaction. A father who we just can never measure up to. Doesn't matter how much good we do, there's always more to be done. But John here is a, is a happy father. He gushes over his children. Um, and so I just want to urge you as dads to set the tenor in your home as one of happiness, of joy. Um, and, and, uh, and so I, I pray that you can do that. That's what we want here as a church too. We don't want to be a church who constantly hounding people. We do talk a lot about sin. We do take serious our desire to grow. And yet you should know that if you were to sit as a fly on the wall of our elder meetings, you'd hear how happy our elders are in you, how excited we are. We've been talking about Pine Grove Wednesdays and how awesome it is to see so many people in the church coming together and serving each other. Heard yesterday they filled up a 30, um, what do you call it, yard uh, dumpster, just four guys here working real hard. We have a lot of people working like that in our church. It brings us great joy. So anyways, uh, John is a happy father, but notice what makes him happy. Notice what brings joy, great joy to John. I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John rejoices greatly that Gaius and likely others are walking in the truth. 
<clears throat> John states that nothing makes him happier than here that his children are walking in the truth. Every parent gets this. Every parent gets this. We want our children to know Christ and follow him. So there's no greater joy than this, which means, of course, there's no greater sorrow than when our children aren't. That is a sorrow that some of you know all too acutely. You're painfully aware that your children have very little or no love for your Savior and your God. And uh, I want you to urge you to hope in God in this. You see throughout Scripture there is great patience and mercy in God for the children of believers no, how long, no matter how long it's taking. I just want to remind you too as parents, sometimes you can get distracted and worry about things that are much less important than how our children are relating to God. And you should note as well that in this, our hope can only be in God. It, it takes a new birth from God to cause our children to love our God just like it took in you. And so take care of the kind of pressure you put on your children. Pray for them. Discipline them. Teach them the truth. But typically the best thing you can do for your children is to take joy in the Lord yourself, to worship him, to confess your sins, to just be a regular, normal Christian. But we want our children to be walking in the truth. There's nothing better than that. You saw these kids walk up here, didn't you? Don't we want nothing more for them than to know Christ and to honor them? And so, children, if I can talk to you a moment, no matter if you're whatever age, um, without putting wrong pressure on you, love your parents well enough to love their Savior. Love him. Don't neglect him. Don't fritter away your life on unnecessary, unimportant things. Give all that you are to following Jesus Christ. There is no, nothing that would make your mom or dad happier than that. They, A's on report cards are great. Right? But sometimes children who get A's are insufferable. Don't do that. Work hard at school. <clears throat> right. but love God. A good job that makes a lot of money can make a parent happy, but they would rather you make very little and love Christ. And so love him. So John rejoices as a father that his children are walking in the truth and he has a specific activity that his children in the church are doing that is evidencing that they're walking a truth that makes them so happy, right? So he's not just here thinking of a, a general tenor of life that they're walking the truth. He has a very specific thing that they're doing that is causing him in great joy. And, 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 and the word to use to describe it is hospitality. So second or third John is written because Gaius and others in the church are treating other Christians so hospitably. He says in verse 5, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. So in John's time, uh, some teachers were itinerant. They would go from city to city, church to church, and preach and teach. 
and depend on the generosity and hospitality of local church to continue their ministry. And this church, Gaius in particular, and maybe this guy Demetrius, were doing this very well. Um, They were strangers to the people in these church, but the testimony is that they are taking very good care. They're treating them with great hospitality. Their walking in truth is equal to their hospitality. And so the specific way that they're walking in the truth is by practicing Christian hospitality. They're opening their homes, they're feeding them, and so on. Now we have talked in our church exhorting you quite often to hospitality. And so I'm not going to do this, but I just want, want you to know, look at all the terms John uses that he piles up to show how good it is to practice this kind of hospitality. Just look at this. He calls hospitality the faithful thing. He calls hospitality an effort. He calls testimony or uh, hospitality a testimony to their love. You want to love the church? Hospitality is a testimony of their love to the church. Hospitality is treating somebody in a manner worthy of God. Hospitality is uh, supporting people who are working for the sake of the name. And hospitality in verse 8 is to be made a fellow worker of the truth. And so let's just turn these into questions. Do you want to walk faithfully before God? According to John, walking hospitality is to walk faithfully before God. Do you want to have a good testimony of Christian love? How do I have a good testimony of Christian love? Hospitality. Or how could I be a better fellow worker in the gospel? I want to I be considered a fellow worker in this great how? Hospitality. It's like hospitality is a Sunday school answer here. And so I'd just continue to urge you. I, I know many of you are doing it. It's wonderful. I hear about it frequently. It's, it's really a joy to hear how you treat it hospitably. I want to urge you to do it more so. You don't have to have a special spiritual gift here. You just have to have a roof and four walls and a door to let people in. You might want to keep certain people out, but you want to let us in. Invite them over. Um, it doesn't matter what. You know, order subs from Subway. Or if you really like them, CTs. Um, you know, I just make it simple. Invite them over. And I can urge you to consider... Uh, those that you see in our church might not have the kind of relationships that many do. We have new people coming, and so uh, do that if you would. All right, so the opposite, though, of walking in the truth is this guy, Diotrephes, in verse uh, 9 and 10. So you can see the tone changes here. John says, I have written something to the church. Not sure if this is referencing first or second John. Probably second John. And you have this guy, Diotrephes, who is doing the exact opposite. And in verse 11, John urges these beloved saints to imitate uh, good and not evil. The evil that they're not to imitate is this guy, Diotrephes. And the good that they are, are Gaius and the others and Demetrius. So the, the evil one that John has in mind that they're not to imitate is Diotrephes. And we see here that Diotrephes is prideful. 
He likes to put himself first. Because he puts himself first, he's a liar. He brings up wicked nonsense. He's lying about John and the others. He's a slanderer. Pride, a prideful person is almost always a liar. Because they, they always have to be seen as better than others. They like to put themselves first. They can't be seen as second. And so they have to maintain this illusion. And so they lie about others. They tear others on with their words in order to build themselves up. And so if you have a problem lying, the root of it is often your own pride. If you lie to others consistently, if you as a child, when your parent says you did this and you did it and you lie or you twist it, it's often just pride. You want to maintain the illusion of perfection, of goodness. But we know as Christians the doctrine of sin, right? We are warped in sin, so we don't have to lie about it. That's all of us here. There's no, there's no need to lie about it. So prideful people have to protect their image at all costs, and that cost is often lying. And then this pride that leads to lying leads to division. He puts people out of the church. In order to continue this control of his reputation, he lies, and then he can't stand to have people in the church who are on John's side, so he kicks them out of the church. Now, one of the strange things that's happening in the contemporary church is we have the mistaken notion that truth divides. How many of you have heard that? Truth is the divider. We want churches where our only creed is Christ. We don't, we don't want to have other biblical doctrines be taught regularly because they're divisive. And if we focus on truth, we'll upset each other and people will leave. And so we need to just simplify things. We need to just make it really plain about Jesus. Just preach the gospel. Just preach Christ and him crucified. Our, our, our only creed is Christ. And we don't want other truth because we have this underlying assumption that truth is a divider. And it's wrong. Truth is a divider. John is consistently telling us that truth leads to unity. Standing firm in the truth, preaching the truth, which may cause some people to divide, ultimately leads to the kind of unity we all want. What divides is pride and lying. You see that in here? Diotrephes is a divider because he's proud and he's a liar. John is a uniter because he tells the truth. And look at how John tells the truth. He names names. <laughs> he calls Diotrephes. He says that Diotrephes likes to put himself first. He tells, he tells that Diotrephes will not acknowledge apostolic authority. He tells that Diotrephes is talking wignosis. John is telling the truth to unite the church. Diotrephes is a prideful liar dividing. We have to get it through our heads the truth doesn't divide. We don't want to soften the truth. Right? We don't want to ignore the truth, thinking that it will divide. It doesn't. Now, you can be the kind of person, I can be the kind of person that uses the church or the truth like a hammer and just beats people into submission. That will divide. But that's not using the truth in the truthful way. That's using the truth in a prideful way. It's doing exactly what we're saying here. The truth unites. The truth unites. So wherever you see broken relationship and division, you'll see pride and lying. Always. Wherever you see unity, real unity, you'll see that 
that those people, that church is standing firm in the truth. So you have to rewire your brain on that one. We have to rewire our brain. Now, I just want to talk a little bit here, using John as an example. We're told here to imitate, not imitate evil, but imitate good. And one of the, the goodness, or the, the good that we should imitate is how John is speaking in this letter. Can I, I, how John speaks in this letter as a pastor, as a church father, if you just think about it for a moment, probably seems really strange to you. Have you ever heard this kind of talk in a church? Have you ever heard somebody named who's doing wrong? He doesn't use subtlety. (laughs) He just names the name, Diotrephes. This letter would be read in front of the whole church, and it's likely Diotrephes is sitting there listening to it. He names him. He calls him evil. Now, truth, the definition of truth is that it corresponds to reality. What is actually real is what then is said. And John is being a really good church father here. In fact, one of the things, how I want you to consider this is under the heading judgment. John is making a judgment here. John is being judgmental, if you'd like to put it that way. He is, he judges Gaius worthy of praise because of his godliness, and he judges Diotrephes evil because of his pride and lying. This should help us understand the role of fathers, be they a church father, pastor, elders, or your father in the home, or us as church fathers or church mothers in the church or in the city, so on. Part of our job is to protect. And a central way that we protect is by making judgments. You have to make judgments. You must welcome the good and reject the evil. You must delight in the good and discipline or even remove the evil that threaten the children. Let me take this in a direction that may sound initially shocking. How many of you have heard the two words servant leadership in the church in the last few years? Heard that term? How many of you have gone to a Christian bookstore and seen shelves full of books about servant leadership? It's like the thing. Well, Not so much anymore, but 80s, 90s, early 2000s, it was the thing. Servant leadership. And there's a lot of good in it. Biblically understood, leaders need to serve. Understood like that? Yeah, yeah, yes, and amen. The problem has become with this is that in our age that hates masculinity, um, we have come to understand servant leadership in some ways that are very unhelpful. The biblical example always in these books on servant leadership or on servant leadership is Jesus. And almost always the example in Jesus' life that they point to for servant leadership is when he washed the disciples' feet. If you've read a book on servant leadership, there's probably been a chapter or ten on washing feet. It's like the thing. And, And it is good. 
Jesus is showing there that even though he's God made flesh, he is willing to do the lowest of low. That's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? You lay down your life. But in our current culture that hates authority, that despises our authority, one of the ways this has seeped into the church is to see leadership as only doing nice things. Of never being willing to do a hard thing. Of never saying hard things. Of never naming names. Of never telling the truth like John tells the truth. You'll never see in a book on servant leadership third John held up and how John talks here. Or you'll never see in a book on servant leadership Jesus taking whips and cleansing the temple as an example of servant leadership. It's a very narrow understanding of servant leadership in the church today. It's not biblically true because it's so narrow. Do you understand what I mean? The only examples you get of servant leadership in Jesus' life are when he's being nice. Of when he's saying kind things. But was Jesus a servant leadership when he was telling the entire crowd that the Pharisees were whitewashed tombs? Is that servant leadership? Was he serving people as a leader there? Yeah. He was protecting people from those who would do him eternal harm. Was Jesus being a servant leader when he entered into a temple and opened up a can of anger on him? Was that servant leadership? When he is overturning tables and running them out in righteous anger, is that servant leadership? Is John here in 3 John Naming diatrophies, telling the church that he likes to put himself first, that he will not acknowledge their authority, that he's talking wicked nonsense. Is that servant leadership? It is. So we need men to be men in the church, like John. Servant leadership should entail you cleaning toilets. But if that's all it ever entails, you're not being a servant nor a leader. If that's all you ever do, if you never say no as a husband, if you won't say no as a father, but, but you'll run them all over to their games and you'll take out the garbage for them and you'll do all the good stuff, you're not actually being a servant leader. Okay. And, and so John is showing us this. And we're to imitate this good John even does something in verse 9 that no leader should ever do. You'll never read in a leadership book that you should um, talk about your authority, at least out loud. <laughs> and look at what John says. I have authority and he won't listen to me. Like, you shouldn't do that as a leader, but John does it. Why? Because he loves the church, because he's protecting them. Because this guy, Dr. is hurting people. And John loves him enough to do it. But this exercise of discernment and judgment in authority isn't always negative. John judges Demetrius too. He's got a good testimony. In fact, Demetrius' testimony in light of God's word is good. And I'll add my own testimony to it. Demetrius is a godly guy. And in ending this then, I want to remind us, beloved, of how throughout Scripture... God promises to reward 
his own people for their good deeds. Think of Jesus in Matthew 25. At the final judgment, when he's judging the goats from the sheep, what did he say to the sheep? Come on into my reward. Because when I was naked, he called me. When I was thirsty, he gave me something to drink. When did we do that? When he did it for the least of mine, he did it for me. What kind of God do we have? He's a God who rewards. He's a God who judges and rewards. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is being maligned by the church like John is being maligned by diatrophies. And he says, I don't care what, how anybody judges me. I don't even care how I judge myself. Because there'll be coming a day when I stand before God's heavenly court and Jesus judges me. And then you know what he says? And each one will receive his commendation from God. God is a God who commends his people. God is a God who rewards his people. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that no one can approach God by faith. And faith is believing that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. So in all of our talk of judgment and of doing hard things, we have to remember the kind of father God is. He's the kind of father who rewards his children, even for our most meager, insignificant acts of service for each other. And let me say that about our church. There is much to commend at Pine Grove. One of the things I do is, I've said this before, I use our church directory and pray through a page a day. I, I miss some days. It's usually Thursdays. I don't know why. But it's one of my favorite parts of the day because I see five or six of your pictures if you've consented to getting a picture taken. And it, and it makes me happy because I, I think about the things you've done for others. I think about the way you serve. I think about how you've supported and encouraged me. It is, it's really one of my happiest moments of the day thinking on you. It brings joy. It makes me think of how God the Father relates to us. It's how he relates to us. Let's pray. Well, Father God, I praise you for being the kind of God who rewards, who commends. Thank you that you are not a stingy God, a God who can never be pleased. Um, God, I pray that you would Teach us, help us, strengthen us to continue to walk in the truth, especially in the truth of hospitality for each other, that we would not imitate evil but imitate good, and that we would learn from John how to be fathers who rejoice in our children, who do the hard work of making judgments and keeping out that which is evil and, protecting and keeping in that which is good. And so, God, just help us be faithful to your word here. God, again, we praise you for being a God who is near and a God who rejoices in your people. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The charge is this. Pray for the children of our church. Right? Parenting is the hardest work next to dying that any of us will ever do. It doesn't matter how old or young your children are. And so would you pray that parents could have the joy of their children walking in the truth. Make that. Um, your job as church fathers and mothers. The peace of God our Father, given to us through the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, walking applied to our lives by the working of God's Holy Spirit, go with each, uh, each of you.
In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord. I love you.